Welcome to Getting Through It, where we're here to help you get through it. I'm John Bwery, and as always, I'm with seismic sleuth, Dr. Lucy Jones. Today's episode is sponsored in part by SoCal Gas, who's committed to building resilience in the communities it serves. We also thank our individual supporters who help underwrite the work of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society through Patreon. Would you consider sponsoring this podcast for as little as $5 per month? Because your support enables us to serve even more communities. Simply go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search Dr. Lucy Jones. And now, let's get to it. This week saw the anniversary of the January 26th, 1700 Great Cascadia Earthquake. Yeah, you heard me say that correctly. January 26th, 1700, more than 300 years ago. It was a magnitude 9 that is the largest known earthquake that occurred in the lower 48 United States. Lucy, how on earth, literally, is it possible that we know the exact time and date of an earthquake that happened before written records in this region? Well, the story of Cascadia is a story of incredible scientific sleuthing. It begins with the discovery of plate tectonics and realizing from the patterns of where the plates are that there had to be a subduction zone off the Pacific Northwest. A subduction zone is a place where one plate goes down underneath the other It gives you volcanoes, as we see in the Pacific Northwest. It also gives us our biggest earthquakes. Cascadia is unusual in that there are very few small earthquakes there. At the beginning of the study of plate tectonics, many argued that because there were so few small earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest, there wouldn't be a big one. But at some point that all changed, right? Now everyone talks about the really big one that's going to happen. What changed our understanding? Well, there were actually three completely separate pieces that came together because, as I said before, the best science explains multiple types of data. First, there was a seismologist actually here in Pasadena, a guy named Tom Heaton, who looked at the pattern of small earthquakes in many different subduction zones and showed that the lack of small earthquakes did not mean that Cascadia was not going to have big earthquakes. And in fact, it was likely to have very big ones. Second, a geologist named Brian Atwater in Washington state started looking for evidence of a big earthquake. If plate tectonics is correct, we should be able to see something that happened when there have been big earthquakes. The key that he was able to use to understand all this are what are called ghost forests. There are places up in the Pacific Northwest where there are these completely dead forests of red cedar trees, but because red cedar doesn't rot, they were still standing there and they're called ghost forests. Brian was able to show there were several different locations that all died in the winter of 1700 and that they died because they were submerged down into seawater. So they went from being a forest just above the sea level to having salt water come into their roots. It killed the trees. And in several different locations, this all happened in the winter of 1700. So we've got a general idea, 1700 winter. But how do we know the exact date that it was just one earthquake and not a series of earthquakes that that did this over time? Right. So the third piece is a seismologist in Japan, Kenji Sataki, who started looking at what's called an orphan tsunami. A tsunami was recorded in Japan, and with their meticulous imperial records, they had information about how much it rose in different locations. And it was an orphan. It didn't have an earthquake in Japan that came along with it. And he was able to demonstrate with calculating how water moves in tsunamis that the source of this tsunami had to have come from the Pacific Northwest. It didn't match Alaska. South America, we would have known if there was a big earthquake. 
And that tsunami arrived on the evening of January 27th, 1700 in Japan. We know how fast the water can travel across the ocean. So we know that the earthquake had to have happened around 9 p.m. on January 26th. And to give the pattern of run-up that we saw in Japan, it had to have been a magnitude nine, meaning it had to rupture all the way from Cape Mendocino in Northern California up into British Columbia. And so the three pieces of data all fit together and tell us 9 p.m., January 26, a magnitude nine ruptured the whole zone. That is some pretty incredible scientific sleuthing, as you've just said. So that's what we know happened 300 years ago. But what does that tell us about what will happen next? As I have said more than once on this podcast, what has happened before can happen again. And so we know that at some point in the future, there will be another magnitude nine that goes along the whole coast of the Pacific Northwest. What we don't know is whether all of the future big earthquakes will be magnitude nines rupturing the whole zone or whether only parts of it will break and we would see smaller earthquakes, say, on just Northern California or the Puget Sound area. As you're saying all this, I'm thinking about that article that came out maybe about a decade ago, maybe a little less, that talked about the Pacific Northwest and the big one that was coming. And it seemed to be like a wake-up call to people that they didn't realize that there was an earthquake risk for a big earthquake outside of California. And yes, it was a very important article that really changed the way people thought about the risk in the Pacific Northwest. The problem with it was that it actually exaggerated the risk, not from false information, but from insufficient information. And there were two big issues. First, we need to look at the rate at which the big earthquakes happen. This article talked about data off the Oregon coast looking at turbidites, which are disrupted soils that get deposited when there's a lot of shaking. And they showed up on average every 247 years. And that was then mapped into saying we have to have these really big earthquakes every 247 years. Insufficient information. What it didn't mention is that if they happen that often, they can't be magnitude nines. We do know the rate at which slip is happening on the subduction zone in plate tectonic terms. And if they are all magnitude nines, there's a lot of slip in them and they can only happen every five or 600 years. So actually this turbidite data is showing us that there have to be smaller ones and not all of them are big. The second part is to look at how bad the damage will be. Again, we look at this Pacific Northwest has magnitude nines. California never even gets up to magnitude eight. Boy, it must be much worse in the Pacific Northwest. But we need to remember, magnitude is not what does the damage. You need to look at the shaking intensity. What actually happens to you? And, and I'll just jump in here and say that in episode 16, way back then, we talked about that magnitude versus intensity. So for our listeners, if you wanna know more about that, episode 16 of this podcast. So now we have intensity, which is what the shaking that actually gets to you in California, only magnitude 7.8, but the San Andreas fault runs on land. People have it in their backyards. They're very close. So the maximum shaking intensity is intensity 10, and maybe a million people will be receiving that really high intensity when we have a big Southern San Andreas earthquake. And we'll have millions of people with intensity nine, which is the type of shaking we saw in the Northridge earthquake. By comparison, when you go to the Pacific Northwest, the fault is offshore. Nobody lives right on top of it. And there are a few places along the coast that will receive that intensity nine that millions of people will get in the Southern San Andreas. Whereas in Seattle and Portland, the maximum shaking intensity is probably going to be about intensity seven, a much lower level of shaking. With bad buildings, it's still gonna be killing people. It is going to be a very bad earthquake, but it's not actually producing 
as much shaking or to as many people as what goes on in California. So when you think about this big one or this earthquake that 15 years ago, people weren't really talking about until they saw this article a little later on, generally speaking, how do risks like this get glossed over? So the public is less aware of it maybe than they should be to make sure they're ready for what might be coming. All hazards suffer from normalization bias, where we think that we're only going to get what we've gotten before and that we know about. And the biggest hazards are always much less frequent than human lifetimes, and you can't just depend on your emotional response of understanding what you've already had. What you saw in Cascadia is people went from thinking, oh, we don't have a risk, to overestimating the risk because of the sensationalism of this article. And I think we need to remember that we need to use science appropriately, find the information, not sensationalized, to tell us what's going to be going on. The psychologists tell us that we need emotions to decide to act. But if we want to understand relative risk, emotions don't do arithmetic very well, and we need to return to our logical analysis that allows us to compare. If we use data to compare risk, which is how much is there to be lost how often, we find that of the large American cities, Los Angeles and San Francisco face the greatest risk because the San Andreas is there and nearby, and that Seattle is third on the list because of Cascadia. Risk is the total amount to be lost, so it includes both what the Earth does and how many people are there to receive it. And actually, because of that how many people part, American City with the highest risk after Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Seattle is actually New York. Well, East Coast earthquakes are a topic for another time, so we'll leave it there. And until next time, I'm John Buery with Dr. Lucy Jones and you getting through it. Getting Through It is a production of the Dr. Lucy Jones Center for Science and Society. Visit us online to get past shows and become a supporter at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search Dr. Lucy Jones. Our music is performed by Josh Lee and this closing music is written by our own Dr. Lucy Jones. <laughs>